Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair and this is Ideas. Have you noticed the headlines recently? April the 29th, Soviet announces nuclear accident at electric plant, power reactor damaged. April the 30th, thousands flee radiation threat as Soviet nuclear fire rages on. And these, May 20th, Ontario foods contain dioxin, more toxic chemicals in our food than in drinking water, study says. May 21st, study shows Arctic environment contaminated by toxic chemicals. May 26th, report cites air pollution as forest killer in East United States. People are now aware that the places where they live are endangered, not wildernesses somewhere, not just wildernesses somewhere, not just the whales, but that they themselves are, are possibly and probably being poisoned in the places where they live. Well, how do we get out of this mess? Tonight on Ideas, we begin a new series which offers some potential solutions. It's called New Ideas on Economics and Ecology. Over the next four weeks, you'll be meeting organic farmers, business people, biologists, economists, and ecologists. Their fields vary, but they all believe that the Earth is a living being and that we are part of that life. They believe that our technologies must be made less destructive and therefore smaller and smarter. And they also believe that in the end, economics and ecology are just different words for the same thing, the way we must live in nature. If we don't establish economies based on ecological principles within the next century, most of the planet will look like Beirut. It's that bad and that serious. I'm not kidding. Tonight's program is written and narrated by David Cayley. He went to see for himself some of the places where people are trying to reconcile economics and ecology. The Matole Valley in Northern California, the Planet Drum Foundation in San Francisco, the New Alchemy Institute on Cape Cod, and the Ecological Agriculture Project at McGill University in Montreal. But let's start in London, England, with the Intermediate Technology Group. Its founder was among the first contemporary figures to unify economics and ecology. I would go so far as to say that uh, the idea of uh, the bigger, the better, the bigger, the more economic, while it may well have been a 19th century truth, now turns out to be a 20th century myth, at least over wide ranges of application. Dr. E.F. Schumacher, speaking on ideas back in 1975. Two years before, Dr. Schumacher had published Small is Beautiful. He subtitled it A Study of Economics as if People Mattered. It was also a study of economics as if nature mattered. Dr. Schumacher saw that people and their communities, as well as nature and its ecosystems, were being destroyed by the same thing, large-scale technology. In the industrialized countries, technology had become an end in itself, not a means to an end. And the result was unemployment and environmental destruction. But even worse to Schumacher was the export of this perverse way of doing things to the poorer countries of the world. Uh, let's say you have a country which um, is covered with small rural brickworks, such as you find in Southeast Asia and East Africa, many other places. And you put into that country a very modern, large-scale, mass-producing factory to make bricks. 
The small rural brickworks will all be killed by the competition. Uh, the people working there will be unemployed. They have no other work to do. Brick production will be concentrated in one huge factory, probably just outside the main, the biggest city. The country will then be involved in a tremendous transport effort to get the bricks to where they are wanted. And at, as a result of this kind of aid, which has happened all over the world, the country will be worse off than before instead of better, and will be landed with more unemployment and more uh, transport requirements, probably slightly better bricks, but probably fewer bricks as well. Schumacher's great contribution was that he saw that technology was not, as had previously been thought, a given factor in development. It could only grow bigger and more complex. He said, look, technology is a variable factor. We can do anything we like with it. We can make it small and simple and human scale. Now let's go ahead and do it. George McRoby was Fritz Schumacher's friend and collaborator until Schumacher's death in 1977. Together, they founded the Intermediate Technology Development Group. That was in the mid-60s. Intermediate technology was meant to address what Dr. Schumacher called the law of the disappearing middle, the fact that big brick plants drive out small brick plants, leaving nothing in between big technology and complete poverty. Schumacher, McRoby, and their colleagues were looking for that something in between, a technology appropriate to both people and place, tailor-made, as it were, for each situation. And the situations they were most interested in were those involving poor people in poor countries. At first, their approach ran afoul of the poorer countries' infatuation with Western-style development. When Schumacher first put forward his idea for an intermediate technology, he applied it specifically to India. And the reaction in India was very hostile, because at that time, India was in the grip of the idea that development equaled copying the West as fast as possible. And indeed, America, Britain and Russia were all competing with each other as to who could unload most high-level, high-cost technology in India at that time. So the idea of rural development and small-scale technology fell on pretty barren ground in India. Then gradually it became evident that uh, India's unemployment problem was steadily growing and that large-scale technology didn't employ people. After all, that's, it was designed in the West where it was designed to displace people. Now, as this became evident, they began to pay more and more attention to the idea of small-scale dispersed technology which would employ people's skills rather than employing huge chunks of capital and large amounts of energy which the Indians didn't have. Within the past five years, there's been an acceleration of this, so that today, instead of talking about it as a sort of philosophical problem, you find in almost every part of India that you care to visit some major activity in the field of appropriate technology. Some of this success has come from innovations in design. Sometimes, big technologies are simply scaled down. In one case, Indian engineers assisted by the Intermediate Technology Development Group, found a way to shrink a 2,000-ton-a-day cement plant to 20 tons a day. The smaller plant turned out to be more efficient than its larger prototype. 
other times existing primitive technologies have been upgraded to improve their efficiency without increasing their scale or cost. This has been done with a primitive type of sugar mill in India. These new designs, combined with new attitudes, seem to be reversing the historic decline of rural India. If you go into certain areas, you find, yes, there are rural people now being trained to do work that people imagine they couldn't do. For example, in the ranchy area, there are people from the tribal areas now being taught to maintain and make, mend, pumps, bicycles, simple rural equipment of different kinds. You can find in uh, places like Allahabad, village centers, centers that serve five or six or ten villages, where they have developed small-scale technologies using local resources. If the local resources are leather, right, they start developing footwear of different kinds, small-scale spinning machines, uh, all sort of agricultural equipment on a small scale, processing equipment on a small scale. Perhaps the, the biggest, most dramatic development of technology helping the rural areas in India has been in the field of water. Now, there are now over two million people getting water from pure water from small-scale technology developed over a period of about 10 years in the form of water pumps that are made locally. There are some more than 40 firms now in India making a very good living out of making water pumps for village use. Now, that's exactly at the level at which one can begin to see this sort of work going on. So, in India, I have seen a major transformation in the past few years. When you began the Intermediate Technology Development Group, you, you were focusing mainly on the problems of developing countries. That's right. uh, did you expect at that time that these ideas would be as strikingly relevant as they now appear to be to our own circumstances? We always had the notion at the back of our minds that it must be so because we in the West have squarely based our development on technologies that are on a collision course with people, with the environment, and with the world's resource base. Now, that was evident in the 1960s, although if you said so at that time, you were widely regarded as some sort of crank or a boat rocker. But people were saying so, and Schumacher, above all, was one who did say so. Therefore, he said, the appropriate technology that we're now beginning to develop for the poor countries of the world will at some point become relevant in our own societies. Not perhaps the same technology, but the same principles will be relevant. We have to develop technologies that are smaller, more human scale, that enable more a wider distribution of economic power instead of a concentration of it. We need technologies that are deliberately designed to minimize their impact on the environment, and we need technologies that do not rely on non-renewable resources. So yes, it was quite evident that we ourselves were on that course, but in the 1960s, during this sort of euphoria of limitless growth, cheap oil forever and so on, uh, even if you said so, nobody, nobody paid any attention to you. By the end of the 1960s, and certainly by the middle of the 1970s, it was quite obvious. And so people have began paying more attention to appropriate technology for the rich countries and not only for the poor.
I remember a lovely story of uh, Schumacher being shown across the prairies and uh, somebody said to him, see all this production, don't you think that's amazing? I mean, this isn't on a small scale. And he turned to them and said, uh, I was just visualizing it in eight acre lots. <laughs> I mean, much more productive. Stuart Hill is a professor in the Faculty of Agriculture at McDonald College in Montreal, a satellite campus of McGill University. He shares with Fritz Schumacher and George McRoby a commitment to appropriate technology. In Hill's case, this means a commitment to an organic agriculture, where farms are small enough to recycle their resources and small enough to be managed with intelligence and sensitivity. In 1974, Stuart Hill started the Ecological Agriculture Project at McDonald College. He began doing research on pesticides. What struck him most was how indiscriminate these chemical poisons are in their effects on the land and on human beings. A piece of land may contain a thousand different organisms, more than 90% of them beneficial. But pesticides destroy the beneficials along with the pests. The result is that all the functions being performed by the beneficial organisms, like the regeneration of the soil, must be taken on by the farmer. That's not nearly as efficient as leaving it to nature, but we do it anyway, because we don't think holistically. We tend to proceed as if every organism has only one function. So we look on um, wheat as producing grain. We look on sunflowers as producing sunflower oil or whatever it is. Now, the reality is that every organism has multiple functions. Even things that we think of as not beneficial, like weeds. So while the weed may, to some extent, compete with the crop, it may also provide an alternative host for a pest it may attract parasites to its flowers which lay their eggs on a pest in another stage and control the pest. Uh, it may bring up deficient nutrients in the soil to the surface and when the weed dies it makes it available to the crop. Now when we look at the economics of weeds we just take into account its one harmful function and discount all its beneficial functions. And I think that's one of the traps in, in agriculture, is that we just ignore those multiple functions which are essential to the, the integrity of the system. The integrity of the system also depends on recycling nutrients, which are found in animal and plant wastes. But the larger the scale of agriculture, the more likely it is that nutrients will be lost and the soil's gradually depleted. If you take our prairie situation now, it's very hard to recycle waste. Uh, the grain is exported from the west to the east to feed animals. Now there's no exportation of the animal waste from the east to the west to, to uh, return to the soil. So we're basically mining the soil in the west to pollute it in the east. In fact, we've polluted the waterways in eastern Canada from pig waste and so forth uh, because it's very hard to recycle all that waste material. It's easier to dump it in the river. So when you have a small scale, it's much easier to keep the cycles cycling, whereas when, as, the, as the, 
the area gets larger, it's very hard to manage that cycle. It's also very hard to be sensitive and aware of what's going on in that patch of land. Uh, if you look at the machines that travel across it now, and the person is sitting up in the, in the truck with the stereo completely isolated from the land, they're not seeing the earthworms moving around and the, the different insects. They don't see the early warning systems. Is it possible to characterize the overall situation in our agriculture with regard to the health of the basic biological systems? Yeah, I think in, in our modern agricultural approach, we're basically going into debt and we keep losing that one more ton of soil or one more pound of pesticide going into the, into the water. The, the problem with this is that biological processes do not have linear relationships. That is, you can't do a little bit of pollution and it leads to a little bit of problem. What happens is that you can do a lot of pollution and it doesn't seem to lead to much problem. And then suddenly you reach a biological threshold level at which everything collapses. I've met lots of farmers out west who tell me, oh, I grew so much uh, sugar beet, say, year after year on this field without putting much on, and then suddenly um, I had to start putting fertilizer on, and then I put this amount of fertilizer on, and uh, I didn't get the same result the next year, so I had to put more on. Now I'm putting on three times as much as I first put on, and this is within their lifetime. Now, to me, that's enough of an early warning system. I mean, the agriculture should wake up. Great civilizations have often ended by destroying their land. In 1955, two ecologists, Tom Dale and Vernon Carter, published a book called Topsoil and Civilization. In that book, they estimated that between 10 and 30 civilizations have already traveled this road to ruin. The numbers depend on which system you use to classify civilizations. The examples included ancient Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Mesoamerica. Today, although no one seems to quite believe it, it seems to me that we're also following this road, unless we change from an exploitative to a regenerative agriculture. For Stuart Hill, it means that farmers must disconnect themselves from the centralized bureaucracies which tell them what to do and how to do it, and instead rely on a kind of attunement with the land, which blends scientific knowledge with intuition and personal experience. I think what's happened to the farmer is that in the practice of conventional agriculture, they've given up more and more of their independence, which essentially was tied up with this ability to behave in unique ways for their unique situations, to increasingly rely on distant solutions and distant experts. And so, for example, with pest control, there may be a, a spray calendar produced, which is a general listing of when you apply pesticides for the whole of the province. And um, there may be a phone-in line that the, the farmer phones in, shall I spray today? As if only somebody else can tell them the trap with this is that the solutions that are being proposed in these printed materials and on the other end of the phone or through the computer 
tend to be single, simple, uh, quick, high-powered, physical and chemical, high-technology, direct solutions to problems. They're the sort of, of solutions that can be packaged and sold and metered out to people. Now, when the farmer comes up with their own solution, they can come up with long-term, multi-faceted, uh, indirect solutions that are based on uh, skill and knowledge rather than imported technology, uh, biological and ecological solutions, things that solve the problem over a period of time rather than instantly zapping it in a dramatic way. Now, the bottom line difference between these two for the individual at a psychological level is that the simplistic solutions are authored. That is, they can be related to the person who solves the problem. You know, you spray the pesticide, all the insects are dead, I killed them. Now, the, the alternative solution that takes place over a long period of time is one that's very difficult to relate the, the person solving it to the end result. You know, they do a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and essentially they're anonymous. And to me, that's the real key to when one is acting clearly, is can you solve this problem anonymously? It's like the uh, ancient saying that of a great leader, the people will say, we did it ourselves. You know, and if you say for the earth, uh, of a great farmer managing the earth or the farm, it looks as if the farm did it itself. This is the Pillow Dome. This was um, it's about four years old now, and it's a second uh, generation, if you like, of the greenhouses that we've worked with before. What we're trying to do with greenhouse food production is demonstrate that in areas like New England, uh, where we import something like 85% of our food, we're trying to demonstrate that people can produce food year-round and uh, can do it without using fossil fuels or without um, using synthetic pesticides. The Pillow Dome is at the new Alchemy Institute on Cape Cod. The man showing me around is John Quinney, the Institute's executive director. New Alchemy has been a pioneer in appropriate technology since it was founded in 1969. And here we can get a closer look at what Stuart Hill has been talking about. The Cape Cod site covers 12 acres of land. There are gardens, fish ponds, windmills, and all sorts of ingenious structures scattered around the grounds. An old dairy barn has been converted into a super-insulated auditorium. John Quinney says it can be kept warm on many winter days with just light bulbs and body heat. There's also the Cape Cod Arc, a solar greenhouse which produces food, controls its own climate, and recycles its own wastes. We began our tour at the Pillow Dome and then moved on to the gardens. We're also looking at the concept of habitat enhancement. That is, ways in which we can use flowering plants, particularly herbs, 
um, to attract beneficial insects that will then assist in pest control on neighbouring crops. And this year we're running some experiments with cover crops, that is crops that farmers use normally to uh, raise soil fertility. What we're trying to see is if any of these crops, in addition to providing that benefit, will also attract beneficial insects that will help control pests in adjacent crops. So we're trying to extract, if you like, or see if there is an added benefit from one component of a small farm system, um, seeing if we can use it in other ways as well. <clears throat> this is what we call a composting greenhouse, and it's conventional greenhouse construction. It's fairly cheap. Uh, less than $10 a square foot. But the novel feature of this building is an um, interior composting system behind the wall here, and that's been designed to be the sole source of heat for the building. And composting um, also produces carbon dioxide, and that's important in greenhouses as well for increasing um, the rate of photosynthesis and thereby increasing production and we think this greenhouse has got a lot of potential for small farm use, particularly um, dairy farmers or um, any, any farm that produces large amounts of manure that can be recycled in this greenhouse, can be used to heat the greenhouse and also produce a marketable product in the form of compost. So at present we're doing uh, research on this building, we just completed a monitoring program to uh, find out exactly how warm the building stays and, and uh, how well it works and what further research we need to do. But this is a um, you know, good example of something the Institute's been involved with right from the beginning, the idea of integrated systems or ecosystem assembly, if you like, taking component parts and putting them together to create some sort of a system that has higher overall uh, productivity than the individual parts. The new alchemy approach is to orchestrate and enhance the productivity of natural systems. It involves designing with nature, seeking imaginative ways to use the possibilities already inherent within biological systems. The key thing that really intrigues me is the <clears throat> concept of using biological resources to provide production and management inputs to agriculture. To, in a sense, you can conceive of an agricultural system where most of the tasks that are required to produce food can be performed biologically. There's plants that will fix nitrogen, for example. There's plants that will extract phosphorus from soil more efficiently than others. There's other plants called allelopath that produce what are in effect biological herbicides. There's animals like geese that you can use to weed certain crops. There's other plants that will host beneficial insects to assist in pest control. So you can go through the whole spectrum of biological options and pretty well conceive of how you can use all of these in a, in a well-designed landscape to assist in producing food from that landscape. And what's nice about using biological resources in that fashion is that you don't incur any environmental costs. You can, you can provide nitrogen fertilizer from ammonium nitrate, but that uses large amounts of energy and it pollutes and everything else. Or you can get the plants to do it, using legumes or some other non-leguminous plants to meet the same requirement that you have.
Down the road from New Alchemy is the home of John and Nancy Jack Todd, both originally from Hamilton, Ontario. Together with friend and colleague Bill McClarney, they founded New Alchemy. Several years ago, the Todds began a new organization called Ocean Arcs International. Its aim was to put the New Alchemy vision to work in the countries of the Third World. Their first major project was the construction of a sail-powered fishing vessel designed specifically for Third World fishermen. We were aware, both through direct observation and through FAO, United Nations reports, that literally millions of fishermen in the last few years have been unable to fish, that they no longer have the fuel for their outboards, the capital for their gear or what have you, and that this is a worldwide phenomenon that coastal communities are in really tough shape. And if you analyze why they're in tough shape, it's because their country's economies have lost their buying power. Their currencies have become worthless. And what happens when these currencies go soft is that the infrastructure disappears. Mr. Yamaha outboard motor pulls out. The local distributor can't, doesn't have a hard currency, so he can't buy it. The oil importers don't want to import oil because no one's going to pay for it with anything they can. So what happens is the economies come unglued. We saw this happening all over the place at terrifying rate. So one immediately says, well, they could go back to the old ways. Uh, they could build traditional boats and, and do it the way they did it a generation earlier. That argument breaks down when you discover that the old ways involved boats being made of teaks and mahogany and rot-resistant woods. They'd all been cut down to pay for the outboard motors and the, the steel boats and everything else. Their trees ain't there so that their biological capital had been used up. So I started to ask the question, would it be possible to build a boat that could be powered by the wind, that could be built primarily out of fast-growing, soil-restoring weed trees, if you will, that would be as fast as the motorboats they were intended to replace? Could we take the information of a high-performance aircraft and speedboat and what have you and apply that to the needs of artisanal fishermen. The answer to all of these questions turned out to be yes. With the help of a prominent naval architect named Dick Newick, Ocean Arcs came up with a vessel which they called an ocean pickup. A prototype named the Edith Muma was built in Dick Newick's boatyard and launched in November of 1982. It was quite an event. James Morton, Dean of the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York, intoned a revised version of the traditional Anglican prayer for the launching of ships. The Paul Winter consort played Amazing Grace, and the Edith Muma set sail for Guyana. The Guyanese fishermen were impressed. One even offered to buy her the first day out. But the Edith Muma was not for sale. She was the prototype, and the plan was to build more like her right in Guyana. It was there that things broke down. There was a lot of interest in Guyana in building a large fleet of several hundred of these because one thing Guyana does have is marine resources. The financial community was interested in a technology transfer, but there were certain sectors, as I understand it, in the government that saw this as a liberatory technology. 
liberation technology, if you will. And they didn't want the idea of maybe a thousand fishermen being able to go anywhere they wanted. They didn't like the idea that they could sail up to Trinidad and pick up spare parts for the remaining outboards that were still functioning, or slip down to Suriname to get wheat flour and bring it back, because wheat flour is, was anyway, I guess it still is, illegal. They were perfectly happy to control the movements of that sector of the society at the gas pump. And so the, the dominant sector in the government, which is, as you know, not a democracy, basically decided that this is not what they wanted. John Todd has not given up the idea of manufacturing the ocean pickup, but for now, the Edith Muma remains one of a kind. She's currently sailing on the west coast of Costa Rica, where Ocean Arcs is involved in a joint venture with Costa Rican tuna fishermen. John Todd has other plans for Costa Rica as well, and he's raising money for one of them now, a model ecological economy that would integrate agriculture, forestry, and fish farming. His basic principle, always, is that biological information is the only key to sustainable development in the third world. John Todd is also working on projects in North America. One of them is a design for a solar aquatic waste treatment plant for his neighboring city of Providence, Rhode Island. It now requires only a final okay from the city to go ahead. That will take some of the worst waste in the country and the byproduct will be total resource recovery. The byproduct will be drinkable quality water. And uh, three quarters of a million striped bass a year will also be a byproduct from this facility. In other words, we are using the waste treatment plants to culture organisms that are needed in the wild. And as you know, there's a crisis with the striped bass. They are very diminished in numbers and they're almost gone. And so, We've just trying to turn the equation of waste around. Waste is by us seen as a raw material, which we have to bump up the food chain to produce end products ranging from striped bass to orchids. And so that instead of waste treatment being a costly factor in society, it is actually an economy creating thing. So if you walked into this waste treatment plant in a few months, you might see, uh, amongst other things, um, a uh, couple hundred thousand trees. Their roots are stripping the organics out of the water. So our hope is to use the solar aquatic treatment technology and spread it all over the country and uh, train literally thousands of ecologists to manage these ecosystems so that we can have clean water. planet is different than either world or globe. The planet is alive, and human beings are part of it. What, uh, what I'm stressing is that the, the same laws that work in ecology work with human culture, and that diversity is what we should be promoting, not uh, uniformity and heterogeneity of cultures based on their bioregional uniqueness is to me a preferable idea of the future than global monoculture which I think is suicidal, by the way, I think it's deathly. Peter Berg is the director of the Planet Drum Foundation in San Francisco. 
Planet Drum promotes the idea of bioregions. Most of us, if asked where we lived, would reply with an address. We live on such and such a street, in such and such a town, in such and such a political state. But we also live in natural countries, distinguished by certain unique biological features, and these are our bioregions. In the last few years, bioregionalism has grown from an illuminating idea into a vibrant social movement with more than 70 groups in North America. For Peter Berg, it all began in a search for a practical way of expressing his feeling that our primary political allegiance must now be to our planet. That's what Planet Drum means, the Daily Bugle, Planet Drum. It was to start beating the drum for how do we think about all being on the planet together. And I don't mean in academic terms, but in human popular survival terms. How do we do this? What, how do you plan it? Right? We know how to nation state. How do you plan it? How does one do it? And I had the good luck of uh, running into the work of a um, planetary ecologist named uh, Raymond F. Dasman, who had just completed an obscure uh, study for an obscure agency called the International Union for the Conservation of Nature and Natural Resources that was called Biotic Provinces of the World. And so I got hold of him and said, um, I think these ideas you're working on are right. There are real natural countries that make up the planetary biosphere. Do we start to plan it by identifying the places where we live as biotic provinces in biological terms rather than geopolitical terms? What we decided together was that, in fact, uh, you could describe and define real biological entities, geographic entities, but that these biotic provinces were too large and they left people out. Human beings weren't part of them. So we took some of the uh, constituent ideas. Uh, a bioregion would be a place that has a continuity of watersheds, it, uh, river valleys, uh, continuity of landforms, of climate, of native plants and animals, and that had, uh, in the past, at least by at least some people, been defined as a home place. In North America, there were native uh, language areas, for example. Uh, if you get a linguistic map of North American tribal areas, those tribal areas are very much described also in climatic, watershed, native plant and animal, landform, soil terms. Uh, the ranges of those languages are roughly what we would call bioregions now. Then the white settlers arrived in what to them was the new world. They carved the country into political regions which had no biological basis whatsoever. The political boundaries of uh, jurisdictions just aren't compatible with bioregional realities. They simply aren't. I mean, your provinces in Canada are a good example of hideously drawn straight lines. And the United States have some, has some states that are nearly perfect squares. Thomas Jefferson sat in Monticello and made a map of the uh, Louisiana Purchase and drew straight lines on the map west of the Mississippi and numbered them, one through nine. What the image of Jefferson drawing maps at Monticello says to Peter Berg is that the nation states we live in are fundamentally unreal. They locate us in a political idea rather than a region of the earth. 
and he wants us to get back to reality. We know that bioregions are real. We know that the biosphere is composed of bioregions, that they are, um, let's, let's call the uh, Great Basin or, or the Amazon Basin, one of the lungs of the planet for the amount of oxygen it puts for our use. Uh, let's think of the uh, Nile Delta as a kidney of the Mediterranean. That's the way to think of bioregions within the biosphere. All right, how are we going to modify our idea of society and adapt it and adapt that idea of what a society should be to the uh, benefit of the natural cycles and natural provision that exists within those bioregions? That's been our problem so far. Bioregionalism provides a new context in which to organize economic life. It directs our attention not to political boundaries, but to the boundaries of the natural systems on which our economies are actually based. And by doing that, it gives us a new way to think about decentralizing political and economic power. Decentralize is essentially a negative term. It means that you don't want to do something that you were doing before. You want to decentralize. The question would be decentralized to where? And my answer would be to uh, start finding a path back into the biosphere. The biosphere is very big. It's very hard to think about it all the time. Uh, it's not the kind of thing you think about while you're waiting for the light to change, the planetary biosphere. But you can think about a bioregion. In fact, it's the oldest way of thinking that the human species has known. It's only through the displacement of the Industrial Age that people began thinking that uh, they moved to the southwestern desert that they would have an English lawn. Now, you can't have an English lawn in the southwestern desert. In fact, it doesn't belong there. It's a displaced idea of where you are. Wherever you live, the place where you live is alive and you are part of the life of that place. No matter how short a time you've been there, or whether or not you're going to uh, be leaving it and going to another place, it will always be that situation throughout your life. The place that you end up being in is alive and you are part of that life. Now, what is your obligation and your sense of responsibility for the sustenance and support that these places give you? And how do you go about acting on it? That is the entire bioregional premise. On a ridgetop overlooking the mouth of the Matoll River in Northern California, I met a family who are living Peter Berg's vision of bioregionalism. David Simpson and Jane Lapiner are in fact old friends of Peter Berg's and associates of the Planet Drum Foundation. In the early 70s, they moved to the Matoll Valley, San Francisco hippies going back to the land. Gradually, they found out about the place they had come to. One of the, the, the real critical things that it took for me to shift gears into serious activism, as it were, or into remaking my livelihood around 
the productive systems of the Matola Valley was a recognition when I looked out onto this river. The first winter I was here, I was involved in trying to write a piece for Planet Drum about meat production in the United States. And I had read about the decline of the great civilizations of the world. And the, system, the process was always the same, overgrazing and poor logging in the uplands and consequent destruction by silt-induced flooding of prime agricultural bottomland. And I looked out the window, and the same thing was happening here in 1974 as was happening, as happened in Egypt and Mesopotamia and Samaria and Greece. And it blew me away. It made me realize that what we're up against is the full force of human history, of this history of civilization, let us say, not human history. So that historical interpretation has been very critical. The view from David and Jane's house down to where the river meets the ocean is still breathtakingly beautiful. But it's a very different view than you would have seen 20 or 30 years ago. The entire watershed has been transformed by logging. The once plentiful salmon runs are now almost gone. In the old days, the old-timers here all tell the stories of Legion about how you couldn't ride a horse across the river because of the salmon during spawning season, or across the cr a creek because the salmon were so thick in it the horse wouldn't, get, wouldn't, wouldn't deer or jump in. They used to take them with pitchforks, really. They'd just go down the river. A lot of the old guys still alive. They'd go down the river with their families, and they'd fill up in a half a day. They'd fill their wagon with all the salmon they needed for an entire season, take them home and salt them. After World War II... Uh, the post-war logging boom uh, it became commercially feasible and technically possible because of the development of new technologies in the war to get into this particular backcountry, very steep, very erosive, very unstable, and very distant from markets. So um, they came in here, and in the process of about uh, basically 20 years, they took 95% of the old-growth timber, and they took it without regard to the future huge amounts of soil because of logging roads and because of denuded hillsides, huge amounts of soil moved into the creeks, gully and sheet erosion rills, landslides, slumps, a great array of erosional possibilities all were experienced here in number. There's probably over 100 million tons of, of soil that has, is stored currently in the Matol River, has moved into the river channel, clogging the, the, the salmon spawning gravel, filling the rearing pools, some of, the, some of our friends here are men in their 70s and 80s. Remember when they were kids, they would, there was a rock just above the Matola Bridge there. And they'd dive off the rock, and it was 12 to 15 feet above the surface of the water. It was a nice jump. And none of them could touch the bottom of the pool. The pool was 30 to 35 feet deep. And now, not only is the pool gone, filled in, the rock's gone. <laughs> so you figure there's 45 feet anyway, 45 to 50 feet of silt in that particular spot in the river channel. So you're talking about a monumental change. I mean, you look out here, look out this window, this broad floodplain. Well, there was a dairy farm there. There were hay fields there. There was riparian forest there. It's gone, man. David and Jane got together with other residents of the valley and decided they were going to try and do something about the salmon. They began rearing salmon fry in small streamside hatch boxes, a practice which they have continued with some success. But they soon realized that however successful they were, they could never really compensate for the ruined river. It became our, our surmise that a healthy, uh, a healthy watershed could produce salmon in, in far greater abundance than any combination of human intervention. But as soon as you begin to consider how do you improve salmon habitat, you quickly end up saying that the only way to improve salmon habitat is to 
restore an entire watershed because the river is at the bottom. The soil that's running into the river off the slopes is where the damage is being done. So you have to deal with the slopes. You have to do the old hill slope erosion. You have to deal with reforestation. You've got to plant trees. You've got to put the old logging roads to bed. You've got to figure out ways to dissipate the energy of the water that the roads channel into, into places that it never was before. So we're into a whole bunch of things right now. We're learning all the time. We're teaching ourselves new skills. Tomorrow we're going to have a class in field mapping because we got to go out and map the biggest slide, the biggest active slide in the state of California because we're trying to do something about it. It's contributing huge amounts of sediment to the watershed. Is the government supporting the work? The government is supporting the work somewhat. The government is only supporting the work because people like us have brought the need for the work to the attention of the government. At first, there was a fair amount of resistance from the resource management agencies because we're kind of stepping on their toes or, you know, getting into their territory or because they didn't trust us. We're a bunch of uh, irresponsible amateurs. They're still somewhat confused, but they have begun to adjust to the fact that people living in places are taking responsibility for their resources, and they're taking responsibility. And, and invariably, when we got resistance from the, from the resources people, they would say, well, you can't do that. We would say, well, look, we're trying to save our salmon here. Now, if you tell us we can't do that, what are you going to do about it? And they would say, well, I guess you can do that. You know? <laughs> the residents of the Matoll Valley have created a web of homegrown institutions to carry out the immense job they've taken on. There are groups involved in salmon enhancement, reforestation, and they even run their own high school, where the watershed work makes up a major part of the curriculum. Ecological restoration is a way of life in the Matoll Valley. And it's a way of life that has its own cultural expressions as well. For example, the valley now has its own dance company, and out of the dancers feeling for their place has come a dance called Human Nature. It was choreographed by Jane Lapiner, herself a professional dancer. The dancers are not just strictly dancers, but a lot of them are involved in the rehabilitation work, or they're school teachers, they're farmers, they milk cows, and so forth. Travel many miles uh, on hard country roads to get to rehearsals. The dance has been criticized by not having profession, supposedly professional dancers in it, and the dancers do vary a lot. Some of them have had some professional experience. Others, you know, have only learned to dance in the last five years. And, you know, with, with more narrow-minded professional dancers, a lot of the spirit in the dance and the spirit of the performance probably would be gone or different anyway. Recently, Jane and her company took human nature on tour in Northern California. The highlight was their final performance in Petrolia, their home community. They danced in the Grange Hall. Huge banners depicting the figures in the dance floated from the wings. Deer people, bobcat people, bear people, salmon people, and raven people. The sound of the drums resonated through the old wooden building. The atmosphere was wild. Well, the thing, yeah, like, you know, you think of a dance concert uh, as being uh, kind of a polite uh, oh, group right. of, uh, you know, 40 or 50 relatives of the dancers, or at best, Serious you know, modern dance. Serious yeah. modern dance. This, you know, people hoot, catcall, whistle, scream, cheer at this, at this dance. It's a little like a pagan religious ex experience, a little bit like that. One of its foremost critics uh, described it as raw, raw elegance, Mozart with fangs. That was one of the, the publicist. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
really. It's about about wildness. The dance is about wildness, and it has this, this, you know, about human wildness and the wildness of the land and the wildness of the creatures of the land and and their common core, as it were. And it's, it's, you know, it has this almost religious depth on the one hand, and yet this kind of, this raw strength, power, and beauty. been listening to new ideas on economics and ecology written and presented by David Cayley technical operations were by Doug Doctor and Lauren Tulk production assistants Gail Brownell and production Sarah Walsh we've prepared a printed transcript of this four-part series it costs five dollars and you can get one by writing to economics and ecology CBC Enterprises box 500 Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Please enclose a check or money order for $5, and remember that delivery takes about eight weeks. We've also prepared a reading list on the subject, and that's free. And you can get one by writing to us here at Ideas. Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.